All right, this is from Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water... The spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The word of the Lord. All right, you may have a seat. So when I was uh, pregnant with my first child... And I was 41 weeks pregnant. So if you know anything about pregnancy, that is very pregnant. That is like over pregnant. And I really was tired of being pregnant. I was in the habit of taking walks around my neighborhood, trying to walk myself into labor. And so one day when I was doing this, uh, one of my neighbors, who was a new mom herself at the time, saw my giant belly and saw me like walk past her house like seven times and flagged me down and said, I know what you're doing. <laughs> I've been there. And she introduced herself to me, and we got to talking. And so in this first conversation, you know, inevitably it comes up, you know, what do you do for a living? And being in ministry, the kind of topic of religion comes up in conversation number one with any new person that you're meeting. And, you know, sometimes this can be a total conversation killer, right? Like, oh, you're one of those. Um, or... Sometimes, because I was a woman in ministry, female pastor, right, this is kind of a curiosity. Oh, like, that's kind of interesting. But for Jen, her reaction was different from anyone else I'd ever began a conversation this way with. She grabbed my arm, she looked completely stunned, and she said, wait, you're a Christian? I need to talk to you. Never happened before or since. The story that we're looking at today is about a time when God sent a man named Philip, an early Jesus follower, to meet a traveler from Ethiopia who really needed a Christian to talk to that day. So verse 
30 and 31, you know, Philip runs up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. In other words, I really need to talk to you. So I want to begin by just looking at this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, and figuring out what can we learn about him, what do we know about him. I really, uh, I want us to understand this man. So he's from what was known as Ethiopia or Kush, which is modern-day Sudan. Um, He's almost certainly a black man. And if you're unfamiliar with what a eunuch is, I apologize for this, but it's a man who has been castrated in order to serve in a royal court. So this would essentially render a man non-threatening in every way. So sexually non-threatening, especially important with a female monarch. Socially non-threatening, politically non-threatening. And it's possible that he chose this path in order to serve in this important role. It's a very important role in the queen's kind of court here. He's in charge of all her money. Um, So it's possible that he chose it. It's also possible, and this was customary at the time, he, it's possible he was born into slavery and at some point made a eunuch, possibly even in childhood before puberty, uh, in order to prepare him for a life of service. So we don't know if this was his choice or not, but either way, he's risen through the ranks to become one of the most important officials in this queen's court. Other things that we know about him, we can tell that he's educated. He can read. That's not a given at the time. Very few people could read. He is educated. He's wealthy. We know this because he possesses a scroll. To have the scriptures written down, you'd have to pay a scribe to actually write it. Sometimes it would take them up to a year to complete a scroll. So this is a precious thing that he has. So he's wealthy enough to own the scriptures written down. But the most important thing that we can kind of learn about this man is that he's a seeker. He is pursuing God. He is seeking God. He is trying to find God. He's a God-fearing man who makes a journey of 1,200 miles to come to worship God in Jerusalem. So there were Jewish communities in various parts of northern Africa at the time, and so it's possible he was a Gentile convert to Judaism, or it's possible he's just a God-fearing Gentile who's kind of looking for God. Either way, this is an extraordinary pilgrimage. It would have taken several weeks to travel each way, travel there and back. I imagine that he probably needed the queen's permission It would have taken a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources to make this trip. And I feel like every time I have heard this passage taught on or if I've studied it myself, the focus is always on Philip. And we're going to talk about Philip. But we always think about, wow, isn't it amazing that Philip, like, obeyed the Spirit and brought this man to faith? What's amazing to me is this man is in Jerusalem at all. I am so moved by this man as someone who is pursuing God and is seeking God and is looking for God. How desperate he is to worship God. And I I look at him and then I look at myself and I think, you know, sometimes it's hard enough to make a pilgrimage of all of 15 minutes to get to worship. Or sometimes it's hard enough to set aside all of 30 minutes in a day to be with God 
And this man sets aside weeks of his life, spends a ton of money, time, energy, and resources just to worship God. It's moving and it's inspiring. I would say that it puts me to shame, but that's actually not the emotion that it evokes in me. It actually evokes like, oh my gosh, I want to be like that. I want to want God the way this man wants God. And so I want to kind of turn that question to you. When you hear about this man traveling to Jerusalem, what emotions does that evoke in you? Do you resonate with that sense of desire, that pursuit, that longing? Or does it kind of, like me, make you look at yourself a little differently? Does it evoke some conviction? This man is looking for God. And so you might be thinking, okay, Sarah, sure, sure, sure. You know, people make, pilgrim, people make pilgrimages to Jerusalem all the time. This isn't, how, how unusual is this? Well, it gets even better. Because not only did he travel all this way, great cost to himself, as someone familiar with the Jewish scriptures, he came all this way knowing that he would be barred from the temple and barred from worship rituals. Eunuchs were outcasts in Jewish society, and Levitical laws were very clear that eunuchs were not allowed in the temple. And yet this man still came. He still came to worship God. Why would he do this? So this is a little bit of speculation, but I wonder something. So he is reading from the section in Isaiah that correlates with our chapter 53. And this almost certainly means, even if he doesn't have the entire book of Isaiah, that he probably has the section that contains chapter 56, our chapter 56. This is from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3 to 8. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." The Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So maybe he read this, and maybe he had a sliver of hope on his way to Jerusalem that he would come to worship at the temple and his offering would be accepted. Maybe. Maybe that's why he came. He was hoping. But when we meet him in Acts chapter 8, we know that he's already gone to worship, he's on his way home, and we know that he would not have been allowed in. He would have been held outside. And so you can imagine the disappointment and the rejection on his way back and the confusion. And maybe he's going back to the scriptures saying, what on earth? I don't get it. And he's reading this Isaiah passage with that lens. This is the passage that he's reading. Um, it is in Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, 
And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And so you have to imagine, maybe he's identifying with the person that Isaiah is talking about in some way. Maybe he sees himself in these words, deprived of justice, like a sheep to the slaughter. There's a lot in here, right? Who can speak of his descendants? But he does not know who the prophet is talking about. He doesn't know. He has no idea. And here's the thing. At this time in this man's life, he was looking for God. He was searching and seeking, looking for God. And God sees him. And he was pursuing God. He was coming after God. And God meets him. God pursues him him. He's been searching for God, and God finds him by sending Philip to him at just the right moment. This man is not forgotten by God. He's not rejected by God. God sees him, knows him. He's wanted and loved and known by God. And the same is true for us. God sees us. He sees us. He sees you. God saw this man's heart He saw his questions. He saw his desire. He saw his longing and disappointment. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a man he doesn't know comes along at just the right time and says, do you know what you're reading? God sees this man. Have you ever felt unseen or forgotten or rejected or disappointed or alone? Maybe you're coming in this morning and this is how you feel. Have you ever felt like You've been searching for answers, maybe even looking for God and coming up empty all the time. If that's you, you need to know you are not forgotten. You are not unseen. God sees you. He knows you, and he's coming for you. He's looking for you. As much as you might be looking for him, God is looking for you more. Another passage from Isaiah, this scroll that he probably has in his possession, this one's for you. Isaiah 49 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she might forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You need to know today that God knows you and sees you. You're his. He adores you. Whatever you're going through today, God knows it. He sees you, and he's looking for you no matter how hard you're looking for him. And God saw my friend Jen. So back to the, this moment where Jen grabs my arm and she says, oh my gosh, you're a Christian? I need to talk to you. She went on to tell me that she was raised in an atheist home, no spiritual background, but through a series of events in her midlife had begun searching for God. And the only way that she knew how to do this was she had begun listening to Christian music. So she had begun listening to Caleb, and she became obsessed with all these bands, and so she's rattling off all these bands that she loves, and any time there was a concert anywhere in Rhode Island or Massachusetts or Connecticut, Jen would go, and she loved these bands, and she's like, oh my gosh, I need to talk to you about this music, and I'm smiling and nodding, knowing absolutely nothing about Christian music, so I'm like, okay, um, yeah, they're they're great, yep, love them. Um, I know nothing about Christian music. But I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, Jen, this is really interesting, right? Jen is looking for God. She's listening to Christian music, 
and she does not know Jesus. She does not know who these songs are about. And this is really a lot like the Ethiopian who's reading the scroll, trying to find God, but does not know who the prophet is talking about. And so I'm like, okay, Jen, I'll tell you what. Why don't you make me a mixtape, a CD, but why don't you make me a CD of your favorite Christian music, and I promise I'll listen to it and I'll learn it, and then I'll tell you about Jesus. And so this began a spiritual friendship over the course of the next several years where Jen and I would get together and talk about Jesus. I would help her think through the barriers she had to following Jesus. I would help her interpret God's activity in her life, even things back to her childhood, where I'm like, oh my gosh, Jen, that was the Holy Spirit pursuing you, and you didn't even know it. So this went on for a while. So for Philip and the Ethiopian, it sounds like this conversation was relatively quick. Maybe it was an hour, maybe it was a day. For me and Jen, this conversation was four years. Four years. But I'm so confident, just like God sent Philip to the eunuch, God sent me to Jen. I did not see an angel telling me to walk around the block that day, but I absolutely believe God sent me to Jen just at this moment in her life. So let's talk about Philip for a moment, the one who usually gets all the credit in this story, Philip. So we first meet Philip in Acts chapter 6, so two chapters before this. He was one of the seven deacons appointed then to oversee the distribution of food to the church's widows in Jerusalem, and really to ensure that the Greek widows were treated fairly. So the church in Jerusalem at this time is made up of Jewish converts to Christianity, both Hebraic Jews, so Hebrew-speaking from Israel, and then Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking from the diaspora. And there's some tension between these two groups in, in the Jerusalem church and some sense that the Hebraic widows, the Jewish-speaking widows, were being given preferential treatment in the distribution of food. And so they appointed these deacons to make sure it's fair. And so what we know about Philip, based on the qualifications for that role, is that he's full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And it's also very likely that he himself was a Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jew. So that's what we know about Philip. Now, in between chapter 6 and chapter 8, something happens. So Stephen another one of these deacons was stoned to death by the religious Jews. And this sparks a massive persecution of the early church in Jerusalem. So this is at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. On that day, uh, this is 8-1. On that day, the day of Stephen's stoning, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that Samaritan city. So Philip fleeing persecution ends up in Samaria. Now Samaria, you might know this if you are familiar with kind of other Bible stories. Um, Samar Samaria and Samaritans were people who were despised and ostracized by good, faithful, religious Jews because they were descendants of Jews who had intermarried with 
Gentiles. And so they're seen as sort of a half-breed. There actually was an ethnic slur where they would call them half-breeds. I mean, they're really despised and rejected. And just like the eunuch, they would not be able to worship at the temple. They would be held out here. There's a limit. And so if you are familiar with Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman, he tells her, though, there's a time coming when they would worship in spirit and in truth, i.e. not in a temple. So bear with me for a second because I'm going to pull some pieces together here. So Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven and entrusted his ministry to the apostles, he tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so when Philip is in Samaria preaching the gospel and seeing Samaritans come to faith, he is part of fulfilling what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. You're going to be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, not just to like Jewish adjacent folks, but to Samaritans and to the ends of the earth. So he's in Samaria. He's on the third step here. And then lo and behold, what does God do next? He brings an Ethiopian eunuch for Philip to minister to, essentially the ends of the earth. And so to Philip, God sends him. It probably seems incredibly random, this instruction from an angel to go down to a road. Incredibly random. Right? Go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Even after encountering this man and having this conversation, it still probably seems kind of random. What the heck are you doing, God? But from God's perspective, he's sending Philip to be part of this larger story of redemption where the gospel moves from the Jewish community out into the ends of the earth. And so God is weaving together this larger story and he's inviting Philip to be a part of it. So God sees us. He pursues us even as we pursue him. He also sends us and invites us to be part of his mission. And all Philip does really, what Philip does to be part of this is he obeys. It's kind of hard not to obey an angel, so we'll give him that, right? But he obeys. He does what God says. And he probably has lots of like mission-critical work to do in Samaria, and yet he's still obeys. The other thing we see in this story is that not only does God send an angel, he gives him a nudge. The spirit tells him to go up to the chariot. I don't know if you've ever experienced a nudge from the Holy Spirit, which is basically when you have a sense that God's inviting you to do something. And it might seem crazy and it might seem random, but have you ever said yes to a nudge from the Holy Spirit? I had one of these nudges when I was talking with Jen. So I had a sense as we're talking and, you know, having great conversations, but she didn't seem like she was any closer to believing in Jesus or coming to faith. I had a sense that I was supposed to invite her to family camp, which is something that my family and I do in the summer. I had never seen anyone come to family camp who wasn't already a Jesus follower. Family camp was sort of a place where like super serious Jesus followers come to like do super serious Jesus follower stuff. And so... I had never really seen anyone come who wasn't a Jesus follower, but I felt like I was supposed to invite her. And so Jen, for Christmas that year, that is the only thing she asked her family for for Christmas, was will you come to family camp with me? Her husband is sort of nominally Catholic or, you know, pretty faithful Catholic. Um, her kids, you know, kind of involved in the Catholic church to some extent, but 
this was way out of their box. And she said, will you all come to family camp with me? And they said, yes, that's what she got for Christmas. So back to the chariot. Philip obeys this nudge. He runs up to the chariot and basically had the same experience that I had with Jen, where when he gets there, it's like obvious this person needs him right now to tell him about Jesus. So Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And I just want you to think about this good news for a moment to this eunuch. He's traveled 1,200 miles to come worship God. He thinks maybe they'll let me into the temple. They don't. He's disappointed. He's on his way home. He's trying to figure it out. And can you imagine the joy, the relief, when Philip says, oh my gosh, yes, you can. There's nothing that can keep you away from this loving relationship with God. You are welcomed. You are seen. You are loved. The good news of Jesus is that the dividing wall has been destroyed. The veil has been torn. There is no Jew or Gentile. Jesus died on the cross like a sheep led to the slaughter to save not just Israel, but the whole world, including you. Can you imagine the, the joy that he felt to actually hear that the thing he wanted most to worship God and to be in relationship with God was possible with no barriers. Just put yourself in that place. It must have been such good news. And so when he sees the water and he says, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? I want you to think about that question. We, we read it as rhetorical. But gosh, how many things have stood in the way for him thus far, right? So many things have stood in the way of his being able to worship God freely, of the Samaritans being able to worship God fully, of the ends of the earth being able to know God. And so the answer to that, what can stand in the way of my being baptized, is nothing. Nothing can stand in the way. And so when he asks that, I just, I mean, I wonder, does he ask it knowing there's nothing, or does he ask it like, wait, are you sure? Are you sure? Really, there's nothing that can stand in the way? I just imagine like, oh my gosh, what a relief. And so maybe for some of you, for whatever reason, you feel like there's something that stands in the way of your being welcomed into a loving embrace by God. I don't know what it is for you, but there are things that we say, oh, God would not want this. It's not true. There is nothing, nothing that stands in the way of your saying yes to Jesus and being welcomed fully into the family of God. Nothing. There's nothing that could prevent you from being baptized. So Andrew mentioned they're about to do baptisms in the near future. If you've never been baptized, if you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus, or if you have but have never been baptized, there's nothing that stands in the way of saying yes to the best relationship of your life, the best news in the entire world. Let Pastor Andrew know if you want to be baptized. So just to wrap up my story about Jen, Jen and her family came to family camp that summer. She and her husband would attend the Bible studies, and Jen would stay long after, just grabbing anybody she could find and saying, tell me more about this. Like, I have a question. She would just, I'd find her at the table talking to some random person. I was so proud of my friends for how they loved her. And by the middle of the week, I knew Jen was ready. And so I invited her to this outdoor chapel. And I said, Jen, is there anything that's standing in the way of you 
saying yes to Jesus. And she said, yeah, there's one thing. And so we talked about this one thing. We prayed. And God spoke really clearly to her about this one thing she was worried about. And then I asked her again, is there anything left? And she was like, nope. So in that chapel, I prayed with her to say yes and give her life to Jesus. The last thing that I want to point out from this story is the way that God redeems our stories. So this eunuch, you know, who can speak of his descendants? He will not have children. There's a whole movement of Christians in northern Africa who attribute their spiritual parentage to this man. According to tradition, after he became a Christian, he doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He goes back to Ethiopia and brings the good news of Jesus with him. And so there was this very early church in Ethiopia that eventually became part of the Coptic church in Egypt. The Orthodox church in northern Africa has been there for two millennia and predates any Christian missionary movements to the rest of the continent. All of these Christians in northern Africa, these Orthodox Christians, see the eunuch, this man who could not father children, as the father of their faith. God redeems our stories. The eunuch becomes the spiritual father to nations. The outcast is welcomed in. The stone the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. And this little detail in the story, the persecution. Saul is the one doing the persecution. Saul becomes Paul, who wrote half the New Testament. God redeems our stories. And this is what God did for Jen. There are parts of her story that I won't share because they're personal, but Jen would be the first to say that God has completely rewritten her story and her husband's story and her family's story. This is not where she would have seen herself 11 or 12 years ago. They are now active in their church community. They're serving in other people's lives. She and her husband have seen incredible redemption in every part of their lives. This is what God does. He rewrites and redeems our story. So what is it that needs to be rewritten for you? What's the thing in your life that feels like it's broken? It's, uh, it's not right? Could you allow God to take that very thing and rewrite it for something beautiful, not just in your life, but in the life of all those around you? So I hope that this little, just this picture of this man, I mean, I just can't tell you how moved I was by him. I hope it gives you a picture of not only what it means to pursue God and seek God with all that you have, but the way that God is seeking us, the way that God sees us, sees you, is coming after you, the way that he knows you. The way that he might actually send you to be part of somebody else's story and the way that he redeems every part of our story that's been broken. I hope that you, through the testimony of this man who we don't even know his name, are moved to worship God because he is so good and this is the best news. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, your good news is so good. There is nothing that can separate us from your love. Nothing we've done, nothing we believe about ourselves, nothing that's been spoken over us. There is nothing. 
And so, Lord, would you uh, move in our hearts, help us to seek you with the passion that this man is pursuing you with. Help us to trust that you're pursuing us when we can't find you. Lord, help us to hear your still small voice as it may nudge us to be part of other people's stories. And God, would you help us to see the bigger picture? What is it that you're doing in the world that you're inviting us to participate in with our yes? And so, Lord, I just pray for anyone in the room today who is on the fence, not sure what they believe about you, God, would you speak to them with your love? Would you help them to know that you see them? Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.